fermented foods are a hot food trend right now, but it has been an overnight success thousands of years in the making. In this first part of an ongoing series theme on all things gut health, gut bacteria, and the gut microbiome, I'll explore the world of fermented foods, describe the popular ones, and most importantly, look at what science has to say about their health benefits. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow, and I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? While I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements, or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language, and then translating this into what it means for your health. So, on with today's show. Fermented foods hold a firm place in cuisine from almost every culture in the world. Beer and wine are classic examples of fermented foods where yeast converts sugars to alcohol. Other types of fermented foods use bacteria, such as lactobacillus, to make foods like yogurt, sauerkraut, kimchi, and many others. In the West, there has been a surge in popularity of fermented foods in recent years. The major reason for this exploding interest are the potential health benefits of eating fermented foods. And any mention of fermented foods quickly brings up the topic of gut health. And with that, gut bacteria. Now, you may also hear words such as gut microbiota and gut microbiome thrown into the mix. So just to define a few things to ease any confusion. Your gut microbiota is a complex system made up of your resident bacteria, viruses, and other microbes that have colonized your gastrointestinal tract. You may also sometimes hear the term gut microbiome used. The microbiome is all of the genes inside the microbial cells, which create the microbiota. The two terms of microbiota and microbiome are often used to mean the same thing. So I'll stick with the term microbiota from now on. The microbiota creates its own mini ecosystem in the same way that plants, animals and insects live together in their own delicate ecosystem in a rainforest. We have a skin microbiota, a mouth microbiota and in females, a vaginal microbiota. Then there is the one that receives the most attention, the gut microbiota. The entire microbiota in our gastrointestinal tract weighs between one half to two kilograms. That's a lot of bacteria. One third of our gut microbiota is common between most people, while two thirds is specific to just you. This makes our gut microbiota as unique as our fingerprints. The gut microbiota is not a static thing. It changes throughout life, 
after first colonizing the gut shortly after birth and continuing to gather new members from the environment throughout life. Variation is highest during childhood and it gradually decreases with age. Illness, antibiotic use, fever, stress, injury and dietary changes all affect the blend of microbes that make up the microbiome. So with that out of the way, let's turn to the topic of the day, and that's fermented foods. And when we're talking fermented foods and gut health, then it's all about probiotics. A probiotic is any live microorganism which, when consumed in adequate amounts, offers some form of a health benefit. The clinical evidence for probiotics places treatment of diarrhea, especially that caused by antibiotics, at the top of the list. A potential benefit in treating irritable bowel syndrome looks likely too. After this, inflammatory bowel disease, prevention of certain infant allergies such as atopic dermatitis, and an overall general protection against infection deserves consideration, but the science is still evolving in these areas. And any mention of fermented probiotic foods immediately brings something as yogurt to mind, but there are many other probiotic foods now being rediscovered. Some types of yogurt contain live bacteria that were either a part of the starter culture or added after pasteurization. Now, pasteurization does kill the beneficial bacteria in yogurt, so that should mean the yogurt is no longer considered a probiotic, right? But just to show how complex the entire area of the gut microbiota is, there is now some emerging research to show that even pasteurized bacteria can have an effect in the gut. While counterintuitive, dead bacteria can have beneficial effects because they can act as a food source for fermentation by other bacteria. So that makes them technically a prebiotic. Much more about prebiotics in an upcoming episode though. And those dead bacteria that have been pasteurized have also been shown to exert other physiologic effects that science is only now starting to understand. It's crazy stuff, but science. Now, some types of probiotics found in yogurt, such as species of bifidobacteria and lactobacillus, have been shown to help with IBS, with a few studies pointing in a positive direction. But there are studies that don't show a benefit. So the results are pretty mixed at this stage. IBS has many causes, so it is unlikely that a probiotic boost from yogurt will help everyone. Today's podcast, though, is not just all about yogurt. There are a whole host of traditional fermented foods from cultures all around the world. Two well-known fermented foods with strong cultural ties are the German staple of sauerkraut and the traditional Korean dish of kimchi. Both these cabbage-based dishes are made by lactic acid bacterial fermentation. The main difference between them is sauerkraut is cut much finer and has no other ingredients apart from brine, while kimchi is cut into larger pieces and served with a variety of condiments such as chili, garlic, pepper and fish sauce. So how healthy is sauerkraut and kimchi? Cabbage itself is naturally high in fibre and contains compounds called isothiocyanates, 
which have cancer-fighting properties. And as long as you choose unpasteurized sauerkraut, you will gain a potential probiotic benefit. For sauerkraut, it is one of the few fermented foods for which there is a clinical trial in a common bowel disorder such as IBS. A randomized double-blind trial compared the effect of sauerkraut containing viable lactic acid bacteria on gastrointestinal symptoms in 58 people with IBS. Each person ate 75 grams a day of either unpasteurized or pasteurized sauerkraut, which served as the control group. The people were not told what type of sauerkraut they were given though. So both groups of people saw a significant reduction in IBS symptoms and there was no difference between groups. So at least for IBS, it shows that the perceived health benefit of sauerkraut may not be from a probiotic effect. And this seems to agree with the mixed results that I spoke about for probiotic yogurt, that IBS is a difficult condition to try and help and treat with just one single dietary approach. For kimchi, several studies have found that it may be a potent food in lowering cholesterol and controlling blood glucose. A 2013 study involving 100 volunteers who followed a low or high kimchi diet for seven days in a controlled housing dormitory found effects of kimchi on fasting blood glucose, total cholesterol, and LDL cholesterol. While this was a one-off study, the results do look really interesting. I'll put details of both the sauerkraut and kimchi study in the show notes. Kefir is another interesting probiotic food as on the surface appears similar to yogurt. Kefir can be made from the milk of any ruminant animal but is fermented with a different variety of bacteria and uses a starter culture that also contains yeast. Traditional kefir, which originates from the Caucasus Mountains, is a fermented milk drink with a creamy texture, sour taste, and subtle effervescence. It is produced by adding a starting culture called kefir grains to milk. Kefir grains contain symbiotic lactose-fermenting yeast and non-lactose-fermenting yeasts. A 2013 review on the health benefits of regular kefir consumption found good evidence for its antimicrobial activity, as well as improved gut health, anti-carcinogenic activity, control of blood glucose and cholesterol, improved lactose digestion, and a stronger immune system. That is quite an impressive list indeed. Grab the study details in the show notes. Another popular non-dairy probiotic food is the Japanese staple of natto, which forms the base of miso soup and many other foods. It is made by the fermentation of soybeans with the bacterium Bacillus subtilis. Natto offers some of the health benefits similar to soy foods, but with additional value coming from its probiotic properties. To date, there is limited evidence from randomized controlled trials suggesting natto might positively influence bowel frequency in people with infrequent bowel motions, while it may also influence the gut microbiota. One small study in eight healthy volunteers consuming miso soup for two weeks saw a favorable change in some bacteria, such as bifidobacterium, and less of potentially more harmful clostridium. However, these require confirmation in higher quality trials. Then we have sourdough bread. 
The sourdough starter culture is produced through the fermentation of flour by lactic acid bacteria and yeasts that originate from the flour and surrounding environment. Once the starter is ready, a small portion is added to the sourdough base ingredients to initiate the sourdough fermentation process. Several studies have looked at the impact of sourdough bread on gastrointestinal function and disorders. In one randomized controlled trial, 17 healthy adults were randomized to consume a single meal of two sourdough croissants or two croissants made with brewer's yeast. Abdominal discomfort, bloating and nausea were significantly milder in those people eating the sourdough croissants, suggesting they are better tolerated than brewer's yeast croissants. Details of the study again are in the show notes. And finally, we have kombucha, the emerging star on the fermented food scene, if you go by food trends. With origins in China, kombucha is made from a sweet tea base that has been fermented with a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. Traditional kombucha is produced through aerobic fermentation of black tea, although green tea may also be used. Plus, some sugar is added and a combination of bacteria and yeast, known as the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast, or SCOBY for short. Popular in the health food, juice and detox scene, it is sometimes called mushroom tea, getting its name from the brown slimy crust that forms on the surface of the beverage. Delicious, I know. Although kombucha is a rich source of acetic acid and lactic acid bacteria and yeasts, there are no published studies exploring the effect of kombucha on the gastrointestinal microbiota composition or function in humans. That's right, not a single controlled trial in humans to support any of the health benefits claimed by promoters of kombucha. So perhaps in the future, we'll see some more research added to this space to support some of those health claims. While the long list of health claims from eating fermented foods looks impressive, the evidence for some of them is certainly trailing. People have been eating fermented foods for thousands of years, and they certainly have a role to play in any diet. Some of the benefits of fermented foods may just come from the healthy food it is made from, rather than any probiotic effect. So fermented foods are not a silver health bullet, but when added to a healthy diet, they have the potential to make it even healthier. So doing a quick research wrap-up for a study that has grabbed my attention during the week, I'll keep the theme of the gut microbiota going. And for this, a new study out of Oxford University finds evidence for a link between a person's personality traits and their gut microbiota composition. We know that the gut microbiota has a measurable impact on the brain, influencing stress, anxiety, depressive symptoms, and social behavior. This all comes about from the two-way communication between the gut and the brain, called the microbiome gut brain axis. Much of the work looking at the link between the gut and brain has used animal models, or for humans at least, in people with psychiatric conditions. Very little is known how this complex system and variation in the composition and types of bacteria in the gut could be related to personality and behavior in the general population. 
In this new study, which you'll find in the show notes, a group of over 600 otherwise healthy adults took part in a study looking at gut, microbial diversity, and personality traits. Fecal samples were provided by each volunteer to assess the microbiome composition. Each person also undertook a battery of online psychological questionnaires. Information on diet and lifestyle habits was also collected. After using statistical adjustment to allow for lifestyle differences between people, the abundances of specific bacterial types were found to significantly predict certain personality traits. People with larger social networks tended to also have a more diverse bacterial makeup, suggesting that social interactions may shape the microbial community of the human gut in some way. It could even argue for direct human-to-human transmission of bacteria. And interestingly, the levels of certain bacteria found to be higher in people with high levels of sociability were the same types of bacteria that are known to be quite low in people with autism. In contrast, people who experienced a high level of anxiety and stress were more likely to have a reduced microbial diversity. Greater microbial diversity was also linked with diets high in fermented and prebiotic food. People taking probiotics as supplements were surprisingly more likely to have a decreased microbiome diversity. Now, this last finding could be from the observation that people with pre-existing gut health problems are more likely to take probiotic supplements in the first place. This study is one of purely just associations at this stage, and the research field is a long way off from concluding that gut bacteria can directly alter a person's personality traits. But it is very conceivable that the relationship is a two-way one, with a person's personality and how they live their life also altering the gut microbiome. And even if the link is confirmed, it would never be as simple as a person being able to blame a specific personality trait such as introversion on the presence of a single bacterial species. And likewise, a drink of fermented kombucha would likely not turn an introvert into an extrovert. And finally, I'd like to finish off with a question that came through from one of my listeners, Elise. She said that she heard that dairy products cause calcium to be leached from the bones, and so it actually depletes calcium in the bones, while countries with the highest rate of osteoporosis have the highest rates of milk consumption. So is it game over for dairy? Not at all. Such comments, if you came across them, are very often used to justify a vegan diet. Now, firstly, if you want to go vegan, fantastic it can be a very healthy way of eating. And if you're doing it for ethical or other reasons, that's completely your call. This is a nutrition science podcast. I'm not ever going to preach to anyone on what ethics they should follow when it comes to personal food choices. But when it comes to calling on nutrition science research to support a diet philosophy, well, you would best bring your A-game and give a fair portrayal of the research not just cherry-pick research that supports your agenda. I see the pro-vegan agenda used as a platform to call out any research that is funded by the dairy industry, but fail to acknowledge their own biases in only providing a very selective view of the research. 
So on to the full answer to Elisa's question. Firstly, dairy most definitely does not leach calcium from bones. The calcium from dairy is absorbed very well, and bioavailable studies show this. Yes, at a country level, there is some link between countries that have higher intakes of milk having higher rates of osteoporosis. But this is some of the lowest quality evidence to do research as it cannot make allowances for all of the other factors that are important in bone health. And exercise here is a big one. Also, it could be that dairy is mostly drunk by people who have a low risk of osteoporosis and not much milk is consumed by people who have a high risk. These ecologic studies cannot tell you if this is the case. When you look at higher level of evidence at the level of what individuals are doing, not just countries, dairy consumption is beneficial for bone health. Looking at the most recent systematic reviews and meta-analyses, and these are the best types of studies to call upon, there is a clear favorable benefit of dairy consumption on bone health. A 2018 review published in Nutrition Research Reviews found an increase in bone mineral density and a reduction in fracture risk with increasing dairy consumption. An even more recent review and meta-analyses published in Advances in Nutrition in March 2019 found that a healthy diet that included milk and dairy was linked to less chance of having low bone mineral density or of having a fracture. And as always, grab these studies in the show notes. So some of those studies showing countries with high milk intakes having higher rates of osteoporosis are more than likely just measuring Western affluence, of which low physical activity goes along with that. If dairy is not your thing, then there is no need to be concerned. Many people, for a variety of reasons, cannot or do not drink milk. Some cultures do not use milk in their cuisines, some vegetarians exclude milk as well as meat, and some people are allergic to milk protein or are lactose intolerant. Others simply just don't like the taste of milk. Some brands of tofu that have been set with calcium are a great source of calcium in the diet for a vegetarian. Then we have nuts such as almonds and also some seeds such as sesame seeds and tahini which can supply calcium for the person who doesn't consume dairy. Canned fish with bones can also be a great source of calcium. Calcium fortified soy milk is also an excellent substitute for cow's milk in terms of providing an equivalent amount of calcium. Calcium can also be found in good amounts in plant-based foods such as bok choy, kale, parsley, broccoli and watercress. Then there are supplements that contain calcium and vitamin D, which is a better choice than taking calcium alone. So in the end, you don't have to have dairy to be healthy. Yet you can say the same thing about any food. No one single food is essential. If you choose to include dairy foods in your diet, then there is nothing to be concerned about that these foods will somehow be bad for your bones. Dairy foods can be a part of any healthy diet as they provide many valuable nutrients that keep bones in good health. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible, evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. Thank you.